Welcome to AquaFarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of AquaFarm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Uh, today is Thursday, July 9th, and we are going to talk about neutropenic fever. Uh, and this is a, a part of our Foundations of OncoPharm series. And uh, I think this may be the first one that we've done that's not uh, dedicated to a drug. It's dedicated to an oncologic emergency, neutropenic fever, that we all need to be uh, well aware of. So this is really kind of a, a neutropenic fever 101, got more towards uh, trainees or, or uh, neutropenic novices. Uh, and uh, the research for this was done mostly by a PharmD candidate, Emily Scott, uh, who co-wrote the episode. So let's talk about the basics first. When we talk about neutropenic fever, we're going to talk about neutropenia and fever. And let's start with fever. Uh, you, you know what a fever is. You know what the symptoms are. But for our definition of fever, this is based on the IDSA guidelines, it's a single oral temperature of 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 38 Celsius, if you're wondering where 100.4 came from. It's 38 Celsius, 100.4, uh, for at least an hour or any single temperature of 101 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, now, in practice, you get 100.4 or above. It's a greater than or equal to. 100.4 above, we count that as fever because we're going to treat that fever with probably some acetaminophen because people don't feel great when they have a fever. We're not going to like check it every 15 minutes to see if they maintain that temperature over an hour. So that's the fever, simply 100.4 above. And then our ANC is an ANC of less than 500. That's our neutropenia definition or an ANC less than 1,000 if it's expected to fall to less than 500 in the next 48 hours. If you're a neutropenic novice, how do you know if it's going to go down from, say, an ANC of 900 to under 500 in two days? You won't. It takes some experience to do that. Uh, but generally, uh, you would look at where they are in their treatment. Say they're day seven, and you know this chemotherapy has a, reg has a nadir of 10 days. If they're, if they're less than 1,000 at day seven, you know it's going to go down for at least the next two days probably. So there's a good bet it will get down to less than 500. Uh, now, the reason that this is an oncologic emergency is that there are many signs and symptoms of fever. Sorry, signs and symptoms of infection. Fever is only one of those. So let's say you had a skin and soft tissue infection. You would expect some erythema, maybe some pus. It would look infected. Uh, an infected scratch in someone severely neutropenic will not look infected because the mediators of inflammation that cause these signs of infection are caused by neutrophils and white blood cells that are absent if somebody is, is neutropenic. Therefore, fever is the only reliable sign that somebody may have an infection. So everyone with neutropenia with a fever assume infection, okay? Uh, and it is an oncologic emergency. People can, can deteriorate very quickly if appropriate antibiotics are not started right away. Uh, some of the risk factors for neutropenic fever include people more likely to be neutropenic for a longer period of time, and people who are probably not going to overcome a serious infection. So these would be patients at the greatest risk of neutropenia for a long period of time would be those with hematologic malignancies, leukemia, lymphoma. And some of that has to do with, you know, the problem, the call is coming from inside the house. Uh, the problem is in the bone marrow, especially in leukemia, as well as uh, how myelosuppressive those chemotherapy regimens are, looking at U-high-dose cytarabine. Patients receiving radiation at the same time, especially if that radiation is targeting uh, or covering uh, or includes bone in the radiation field, like the sternum, the spine, uh, the pelvis, uh, because there's bone marrow in there and the radiation uh, is going to be hitting that bone marrow on top of the chemotherapy. Um, you're more at risk for, uh, for bad events if your ANC is profoundly neutropenic, so not less than 500 but less than 100, uh, and if that lasts for more than seven days. Uh, and then the older you are, that's also a risk factor, uh, and then uh, basically poor performance status. And the risk typically adds with each round, 
each cycle and regimen of chemotherapy that a patient has had. So let's say you had a chemotherapy regimen that had, say, a 5% risk of neutropenic fever, okay? Um, something like Folfox, maybe probably less than 5%. But let's say this person that you're giving Folfox to for colon cancer had already had uh, leukemia, AML, uh, 10 years before and had 7 plus 3 and high dose therapy, and that bone marrow is not going to hold up the way most people will to Folfox, and so the risk of neutropenic fever is going to be greater in that patient. Um, I've kind of glossed over this, how you calculate ANC, uh, and many labs will calculate this automatically, absolute neutrophil count. Uh, our lab does this for us, and it is often incorrect. Um, um, so I will always advocate doing it yourself. The way that you do this, you take the total white count, normal white count's 4 to 10, but if they're neutropenic, the white count's going to be less than 1. And if it's less than 1, you're talking like 0.8 or 0.9. Uh, and that gets a little confusing. So what you want to do, you take that, that white count that's 0.5, multiply by 1,000, that Y count is 500, okay? And then you multiply that 500 times the percentage of neutrophils uh, and the percentage of bands. Bands are often 0%, so really it's 0.5 or 500 times, say, 50% neutrophils, that ANC would be 250. So it's fairly easy to do um, to calculate ANC. The other thing we want to consider is the nadir, or nadir, not sure how you say it, and that's the lowest point uh, of the white count, and typically this is going to be like 10 days, plus or minus, three, like 7 to 14 days after your traditional every 21-day chemo, and the reason the risk is the greatest here is that the peak, sorry, the peak, the nadir, the bottom, the trough, the lowest point the white count gets is often around the same time that you have the most amount of gastrointestinal mucosal disruption in the mouth and the GI tract. And this brings us to the most common bugs that we see in neutropenic fever. They're bugs from ourselves, from the host. It's staph and strep uh, in the oral cavity. It's E. coli, Klebsiella uh, from the GI tract. And we can see Pseudomonas and we can see drug-resistant organisms like MRSA and VRE. And you really need to be aware of your institutional infection um, uh, parameters and, and, and trends. All right, so the mainstay of therapy is broad-spectrum anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam, plus or minus uh, a, uh, an MRSA-covering drug, uh, plus or minus an aminoglycoside, which really is not used a whole lot. The guidelines are very vague on when to use aminoglycoside, and for that reason, it's not used a whole lot in practice. Um, and when we talk about using an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam, we're talking about our high-risk patients because we do stratify patients by low-risk and high-risk. Uh, the IDSA defines low-risk neutropenic fever as patients um, who are going to have neutropenia for less than a week, you think. They're clinically stable, no comorbidities, normal organ function, and, uh, and a MASC, M-A-S-C-C score of greater than or equal to 21. Uh, and uh, there are about seven, seven uh, criteria on here, seven or eight criteria, and they, you get a score for each of these from two to five. For example, if you're less than 60, that's two points. Again, lower point is better. Uh, if you have uh, leukemia, uh, for example, that is more, that's basically going to make you high risk unless you're in remission. Uh, so you can find the MASK scoring tool. You can work that into some of your, uh, maybe your pathways. You can look at it pretty quickly. Uh, but by and large, the way I think of this is I try to think of who are the high-risk patients. And those are the folks who are profoundly neutropenic, so the ANC is less than 100. They're neutropenic for more than seven days. You know, they're clinically unstable. Or they're, they're hemodynamically unstable. They've got severe mucositis. They've got GI symptoms, including, say, nausea, abdominal pain, altered mental status. Uh, they look like they have a catheter infection, which sometimes 
you won't know because they don't have the neutrophils to mount that, uh, that sign of a catheter infection or anything going on in their lungs. Those are the high-risk folks. To be low-risk, you basically have to have the opposite of all of that. And low-risk folks are usually going to be your solid tumor patients who are not going to be neutropenic for that long. Um, if they are low-risk, you can do an outpatient regimen of a fluoroquinolone, usually ciprofloxacin plus uh, augmentinamox, clav. Uh, you could do Levo plus Augmentin instead. Um, Cipro has a little bit better gram-negative coverage, perhaps, depending on uh, local resistance patterns. Uh, but for our high-risk folks, you know, uh, broad-spectrum anti-pseudomodal beta-lactam. Now, if you are, let's say you're a, a, you know, an M1 or a, you know, you're a PGY1 resident um, uh, physician, pharmacist, and, and you get asked to, to look at a neutropenic fever patient, um, you know, it's very tempting to reach for like cefepime plus vanc, piptazo plus vanc, uh, any of those, uh, you know, mirapenem plus vanc, any broad spectrum anisotobilactam is appropriate. Um, the guidelines talk about ceftazidine, but doesn't have great staph coverage, so we tend to avoid that unless you're going to add vanc for everyone um, regardless. But generally, we're talking cefepime, an anti-pseudomonal uh, carbapenem, so not ertapenem, uh, or Piptazo. Those are kind of, uh, you know, our, your go-to drugs. And at least at our institution, Cepheme is our go-to. It's been our go-to for years because it was the cheapest for our institution. Uh, and then we uh, learned of the data of the nephrotoxicity of Piptazo and Vank. Uh, we've stuck to using Cepheme plus or minus Vank. Now, there are, um, there are about six criteria on that you should memorize of when it's appropriate to add Vank. And of course, your institution probably has its own pathway or guideline that you should follow. But a quick dis quick story here. Uh, where I trained, we had our own neutropenic fever protocol. Uh, and the idea was that they had put everybody, the other high-risk folks for neutropenia on Cipro prophylaxis to prevent neutropenic fever. And because of that, they, they shifted the types of infections they saw in their neutropenic fever patients from gram-negative to gram-positive. They overwhelmingly now saw gram-positive infections. So they changed their protocol that everyone got VANC when they developed neutropenic fever. Everybody got VANC. And that happened for a couple of years before I started training. And uh, my PGY2 research project as an oncology resident was looking at vancomycin-resistant intercoccus infection, uh, specifically in, in the hemonc ward. Uh, and, you know, we had about 40% of our patients were colonized with VRE because we used vanc so much. So while it's really tempting in the middle of the night just to do septium vanc without thinking about it, and the patient, that's that's a very easy way to take care of the patient, cover all your bases uh, without thinking too much about it. <clears throat> and that's that's reasonable uh, if you're busy. But if you overuse VANC, you're going to get VANC resistance. It's, it's mathematical. It's like if there is a pandemic and large groups of people gather together indoors, there are going to be spikes in numbers. That's just math. Uh, so the more VANC you use, the more VRE that you will see. So here are the criteria from the IDSA guidelines of when vancomycin should be used empirically. There's a known or suspected line infection. The patient has a history of MRSA or drug-resistant strep pneumo. Uh, they have pneumonia, just like if you were treating HAP, right? There's sepsis, uh, hemodynamic instability, okay? Uh, they have blood cultures already cooking, showing gram-positive organisms, or they have a skin and soft tissue infection. Those are the six criteria uh, to always use vanc. There's a seventh that involves severe mucositis, and they were on a fluoroquinolone, and you're using ceftaz, but no one uses ceftaz. So those are the six that I tell folks to memorize. And here they are again. Suspected line infection or known line infection. History of MRSA, pneumonia, sepsis slash hemodynamic instability, blood cultures already growing gram-positive bugs, 
or skin and soft tissue infection. Now, uh, where I train, Vank gets started a lot uh, overnight on the weekends. And once they're on Vank, you might as well leave it on because the IDSA guidelines say if they're on Vank and after 48 to 72 hours, there's no uh, bug that requires Vank to grow out, then you can stop it. So they grow out MSSA, you can stop the Vank. They grow out MRSA, you need to keep the Vank on there. Now, if they have not defervesced after three to five days, you start to consider what else do we need to do? Do we need to add an aminoglycoside? Do we need to change from septim to piptazo or miripinum? Do we need some anaerobic coverage? Do we need to add an aminoglycoside? Do we need antifungal coverage? That's a big question to ask. Um, now, uh, a lot of folks will start to think ahead, say around a you know, after 48 hours, they'll start thinking, all right, so, you know, probably our concern here would be antifungal. If there was uh, a bacteria, it would probably be growing out, uh, perhaps if we're doing our blood cultures and following fever. Um, so do you do an acidocandin? Do you do uh, an, an azole antifungal like voriconazole, postconazole, isavuconazole? Do you do amphotericin B? Uh, generally, to keep it simple, uh, if you're worried about yeast, acidocandin. If you're worried about molds like aspergillus, you do uh, an azole like voriconazole. If you don't know and you want to cover everything, uh, you probably would still do an echinocandin or, azole, or an azole antifungal, but that might be a role for uh, amphotericin, liposomal. Um, and that's typically the way that you do it, and you start to think ahead. There's a lot of nuance to it. Uh, maybe you start to, to get a CT scan of the chest and sinuses if you're looking for aspergillus, for example. Um, but... But that's that's the way that you follow these patients. And if you're a trainee and you're following someone with neutropenic fever, these are the these are this is your shopping list when you're working up these patients. You want to look at their fever, you want to look at their counts, uh, you want to look at uh, their antibiotics, to make sure that they didn't automatically get stopped because of some you know seven or ten or fourteen day stop criteria that your institution has, and make sure they didn't miss a dose or something like that over the weekend. Their fever curve, um, that sort of stuff. Uh, and then traditionally, you continue their antibiotics until their ANC, or until they're no longer febrile for at least two days, and they're no longer neutropenic, so their ANC is more than 500. Now, while the IDSA guidelines do recommend that uh, treatment um, for neutropenic fever continue until they're no longer febrile for at least 48 hours and no longer neutropenic, uh, there is a recent study called the How Long Study, which was published in Lancet Oncology in 2017 by Aguiar uh, Guisado, uh, which is a randomized study uh, across six hospitals in Spain uh, looking at antibiotics until a febrile for two days and no longer neutropenic or until a febrile for 48 hours and then stopping antibiotics regardless of neutrophil count. And they, they showed you know no differences in infectious complications, mortality, of course, fewer antibiotic days in the group that stopped early. So there is an emerging uh, maybe thread of evidence about stopping antibiotics once febrile, regardless of, of ANC. Uh, I'd like to see that verified in other centers, and some folks I uh, hear are doing that around the country. So there might be some, obviously, some institutional and regional differences beyond what the guidelines say. Um, now, this gets a little dicey if, let's say, somebody grows out an MSSA, uh, you know, they have an MSSA bacteremia. Uh, you continue your, your broad-spectrum anti-pseudomonal bay-lactam, monotherapy. You could stop the vank if they're on it uh, until they're no longer neutropenic and no longer febrile. But then they've got a bacteremia, and typically you treat that for, say, two weeks. So let's say they get neutropenic fever treatment for seven days. Then they would need seven days of, like, you know, cefazolin or something like that uh, as an outpatient for their MSSA bacteremia. Something like that. There's a, Again, there's a lot of nuance to it, um, especially uh, after you start. The guidelines are pretty clear what to do up front, 
Thereafter, it's a lot of gestalt and takes, uh, takes some, um, some training and some experience. Uh, there are uh, IDSA guidelines from 2018 about the use of uh, or treatment of neutropenic fever in the outpatient area. And you can do that with oral if they're low risk. You can do that. You can do IV antibiotics as well if you have capable home health agencies around there. Uh, and there are a couple different ways to calculate low risk. There's the MASCC or MASC criteria, a score above 21. There is the clinical index of stable febrile neutropenia that the ASCO guidelines uh, cite. You're looking for a score of one or two on that. So there are two different things you can look at. Um, um, oh, gosh, a couple clinical pearls too. A couple things that I think uh, trainees should be aware of. Um, when you're looking at your labs for these folks, they've been neutropenic for four or five days, and you start to see, you know, their white kind of still 0.3, 0.3, 0.3. ANC is still like 200, 200, 200. But suddenly you see the percent monocytes start to go up. It's like 4%, 18%, 30%. Those monocytes uh, are a sign that the neutrophils are about to recover. And I've even heard some people say that those monocytes are actually very immature neutrophils that are being counted as monocytes by the automated differential machine. But once you see a rising, a rising monocytosis, you can expect the neutrophils to come back pretty quickly. And in fact, uh, monocyte count uh, is one of the risk factors for the uh, CISFN, which is the new criteria that the 2018 ASCO guidelines have. Uh, a couple other clinical pearls, and I call these neutropenic no-nos. Uh, don't ever give these folks suppositories. Don't do, you know, like a full rectal exam on them if you're a physician or a nurse or, or PA. Um, don't use scheduled antipyretics. It's perfectly fine to give somebody a one-time dose of acetaminophen when they have a fever so they don't feel bad. But don't give them antipyretics around the clock because you can suppress a fever, and that might be the only sign we know that this patient is infected. And I'm looking at you, Lortap, when I say that. And then, you know, avoid sketchy food. All right. Uh, the neutropenic diet <clears throat> is something we all do. There's not really good evidence for it, but just avoid sketchy food. Uh, and you know, usually, <clears throat> in my opinion, you, you you worry about say raw meats and things like that and contamination. But we all worry about that. Uh, you worry about eating unwashed vegetables. Well, we all should worry about that. So it's really just kind of common sense there. Uh, and those are really the, the big things uh, about, about neutropenic fever. And it would be great if we could prevent this, and we can. And generally, patients who are going to be neutropenic for more than a week, we consider neutropenic fever prophylaxis. And typically, our agent of choice for, for neutropenic fever prophylaxis is going to be a fluoroquinolone and probably levofloxacin, which has some decent gram-negative uh, and some decent gram-positive coverage. Some folks use ciprofloxacin. Um, people have studied, uh, say, Bactrim, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole in the past. Uh, both levofloxacin and Bactrim have good data about preventing neutropenic fever. We do have a, a little bit longer time to neutrophil recovery with, with Bactrim, DS, twice a day, because of the, the, the myelosuppressive effect. So levofloxacin is typically what's used. And if, if you, you, know, you go back and forth between different guidelines and different, um, say, different physician subspecialties, the oncology folks tend to really be in favor of levofloxacin prophylaxis because it does prevent uh, neutropenic fever um, uh, by as much as uh, 48%. And maybe, um, you know, so certainly very helpful 
uh, from a, a morbidity standpoint. Uh, if you look at the infectious disease doctors, they're, they're, they're in maybe some of your stewardship pharmacists. Uh, your antimicrobial stewardship pharmacists are worried about using levofloxacin so much because of resistance. Um, but we typically do use it for our high-risk patients who we know are going to be neutropenic for more than a week. And those are usually going to be uh, your acute leukemia patients. Uh, and if we're doing that, we're also probably going to do an antifungal prophylaxis like fluconazole 400, 200, 800, no great well-designed studies to know the dose. So 400 is kind of the, the middle or the median value that you see. And then certain patients sh should also receive PCP prophylaxis. Um, those would be folks receiving, say, lymphocyte-depleting therapy, those getting transplant, uh, certain PI3K inhibitors like idolalacid perhaps, uh, more than 20 milligrams a day, prednisone equivalent for a month, uh, temozolomide every day with radiation is a big one, uh, and several other examples, a lot of our ALL patients because of all the steroids they're getting as well. Uh, but generally, your average uh, cancer patient doesn't, really need, doesn't need PCP prophylaxis. Uh, but if we're doing antibacterial prophylaxis for neutropenic fever and antifungal prophylaxis, we'll also do antiviral prophylaxis, either acyclovir twice a day, like 400 twice a day, or valacyclovir 500 once a day, is what we tend to do. Um, so just to, you know, just to summarize, this is a, a an oncologic emergency requires uh, broad spectrum antibiotics uh, right away, very quickly. Um, one of the other key things to think about if you're if you're thinking about outpatient therapy, and this is in the guidelines, is where do these patients live? Uh, do they live close by? Do they have somebody who lives with them? Do they have reliable transportation? All of those things are required if uh, you're going to try and treat them as an outpatient. And really, it's an important part if you're going to give them myelosuppressive chemo uh, in the first place. So uh, we're going over 20 minutes. There's, you could do, in fact, I do do a whole one-hour lecture on this uh, in class. So this is uh, kind of, you know, neutropenic fever 101, a couple of clinical pearls, uh, and a huge uh, thanks and shout-out to Emily Scott for writing this and doing all the research for it. And I tell, I talk to you again. Remember, doses matter. Thank you.